Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And in this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I sat down with Mo Hamzian to talk about how to make confident decisions. Mo is a London Business School Sloan Fellow and the co-founder and CEO of VEL, a premium utopian tech-forward work cafe, an established leader with 20 years experience in nearly all things business. Mo excels at building businesses and creating value. He has successfully exited projects with a total value of over $150 million. And now I'm going to welcome you to join the conversation where Mo and I talk about how to make confident decisions. Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall, and I'm so excited to be sitting down with Mo Hamzian to talk about how to make confident decisions. And to kick off, we're going to talk about Mo's origin story, which is filled with confident decisions. How do you go from being, you know, an individual to owning an organization? So Mo, I want to turn it over for you. We've just shared with our audience all the great things about who you are and what you do, but let's hear from your mouth. Tell us about yourself and how you came to be. Yeah, thanks very much, Jen. Lovely to be here. I I listened to your show and uh, I'm a big fan of how you see the world and come at things. So uh, I'm glad to be here. You know, it's interesting. I, I started, I, I graduated in, in the mid-1990s, and then I started working soon after. And you kind of watch the progression of terminology by itself and syntax and context of what entrepreneurship is about in the 1990s, what decision-making was about, what the world context was about, you know, over the last sort of 30 years, and how I've changed over time. It's it's quite it's quite staggering, you know, and these you go through these kind of seven-year cycles of shedding your skin and then renewing yourself with your new values, new systems. Um, so I, I preface that because the current me <laughs> uh, in, in, in 2022 is far different to me 20 years ago. And, and, and both of my aspirations are different. How I see the world is, is, is different. Um, to some extent, my value systems are, 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 have evolved. Um, maybe the core engine is still is still the same that you know what you expect and what you want from yourself and that level of drive or, or some things you look for your rudder. Um, but all in all, I think I've you know evolved into someone that really wants to solve problems, and that's been the common denominator in my life. And sometimes that is transient, and sometimes that's more long term, depending on what business you get involved with. Um, so. At the moment, I'm, I, I see that the, the, the hybrid workforce um, has changed a lot, and we're, I'm sure we'll talk about it. We're bringing a really cool product to market there. What, walking backwards, I, I moved to, to the U.S. in 2017. And let me tell you something. Immigrating countries um, is an imperfect decision. It's a very difficult one to make and sometimes very tough to get right. Um, but my family and I did it, and uh, retrospectively, uh, it was a good decision. And before that, I was pretty much in in Europe. Um, in and I lived. My base was in London, and I I traveled to different continents for work, predominantly in real estate and F and B. Um, but having come to the U.S., I've I've noticed several differences between the US and maybe Europe and UK. And we I would like to spot some of those differences. Yeah, okay. let's talk about it. Let This is our learning opportunity. I want to hear them. So let's put it in binary and kind of broad brush generalization here, you know, and my my kind of UK counterparts might um and about this slightly, but, you know, UK and Europe is much more 
what's established in terms of mindset and much more conservative and far more risk averse and to some extent um, much more liberal in their thinking. Not always, but certainly in commerce. So when when it comes to decision making, it's the the, the, the starting position is often no. <laughs> until, <laughs> until proven right. Yeah. So if it was binary, it would be a zero, not a one, until proven right. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. In some respects, science, for instance, that's a very good thing. In medicine, that's a very good thing. But in commerce, sometimes you need to make decisions slightly faster. In the U.S. today, and I think what, it's not just the population of the U.S. that supports it as the single largest global market. It's also the mindset, the attitude of the U.S. I think in the U.S. today, again, speaking, generally speaking, sure. the, the mindset is the other way around. Everything is, is yes, it is possible until proven no. So that, that, that little small detail in, in how you see the world um, can collectively can make an enormous difference in your own personal manifesto, but also the countries. So essentially it's either you have to prove it to me or I believe that it's possible. You know, I don't have to prove like something else needs to prove that it can work or right. I can prove that it can work. You know, and I think that is a fundamental difference in terms of how even maybe leaders make decisions and how they might see themselves. I love that you called out that difference in maybe conservative approaches to decision-making, because we're talking about decision-making to our audience. Many people are struggling with, how do you know whether or not you're making the right decision? What information do you need to rely on? Or how do you make a decision when you don't have enough information? And even thinking, I love that where you're going, what is your mindset around decision-making? Mo, what do you think are the barriers that people run into when they're trying to make good decisions? Well, often decision-making, like many other things, is a muscle. Unfortunately, the education system doesn't, doesn't web that into the, to, to the ecosystem of the first 18 years of your life to actually teach you how to make decisions, how to analyze at what point you stop analyzing, at what point you pull the trigger, uh, what outcomes could look like, how do you change from outcomes, at what point do you, do you relinquish a decision and walk, for, walk away from whatever you decided. But underlying all of that, I think human beings you know, evolution has meant we have to have certain amount of fear in us. You know, mm -hmm. everyone wants to walk away from danger and our ancestors and predecessors had some real dangers they had to get away from. So because we are afraid, we, we're also afraid of making bad decisions and committing to it. So that's to some extent, loosely speaking, in terms of carnal terms, fear is, gets in the way of, of good decision-making. Doubt and self-confidence make this bad decision making, but you know, being alone, which is one of the things. By alone, I mean either a very very small team, or not being open enough with people around you to involve them in that decision making. And again, we can talk about that. And and in in small organisations, you see that a lot, whereby people are so much in the trenches, travelling at such high speed that they don't bring the periscope up all the time to be able to make better decisions for six months, eight months, 12 months down the line. And they haven't supported themselves with the right people around them to help them be accountable to some of those decisions. I love that. So do you feel like piece, a piece of that is someone's confidence to ask for help to make decisions? Like, is that a piece of it? Because you talk about fear. It's the fear of, you know, maybe we can avoid making the decision because we don't want to get it wrong. I think every listener can probably relate to that, that 
None of us want to make the wrong decision. Of course, we want to make the right one. But then what are we doing to help ourselves actually make that right choice? Then I feel like we do. We suffer in silence and we don't maybe rely or reach out for and find additional people that can potentially help us solve our problem or make that decision. I agree. And, you know, decision making can become micro, whereby, you know, you can go through a series of seven or eight gates, eventually micro gates, to eventually arrive at the ending decision, whatever that is. You, you want to buy a new fridge, for instance, right? I mean, and that that's maybe a, a smaller decision, although it's it has a, has a significant cost to it. Um, but having good information is important um, and good data is important, but to what extent do you rely on its accuracy? Now, if you're going into, for instance, in my business, you go into a 10-year lease whereby we will talk about this again, how quickly can you get out of that decision, what switching costs can look like, you may want to front load some of that decision-making with, with other people around you and rely on better data than if you would, for instance, making a softer decision. Um, so it depends what kind of a decision you're trying to make and what the consequences are and to what, how much domain experience do you, do you not have? Um, and having a lot of domain experience is amazing, but it also means because of the incumbent, you have a lot of blind spots um, because you may have not moved on with sign of the times, whether it's because of technology or geo market or whatever it is that you think you know, but in fact you don't. But because it is what you do, you think you know, you don't support yourself with the right kind of periphery mirrors, uh, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also, it just brings up the fact that we also think that we know more than what we do. And we are, we sometimes rely on that bad data instead of actually taking the time to maybe research or get a counterpoint or ask someone else their perspective. Could you at a high level talk about, because I think this will be helpful for our audience to know the type of business that you run, because you were, you know, for lack of a better way to describe it, you wear a lot of hats. You are an entrepreneur. You are a CEO. I mean, how, like, how did, can you tell a little bit to our audience about what you do? Because you're making decisions that are going to impact the long-term success of your organization, whether that's the, you know, the rent that you're going to pay for lease, but then also determining what next, where do we go? So if you could just share a little bit about who you are in your, in your organization. Well, I'm very lucky to be leading a really fast-growing company. Um, we are, you know, tongue-in-cheek, if, if, if I met you and all your audience in a very large elevator and, you know, you guys ask what we do, we say we're bringing the love child of Starbucks and WeWork to market. We believe the hybrid workplace has changed how we work and how we commute and where we work from. And we think um, the coffee shop is one of those to-go places where millions of people around the world spend billions of dollars going to coffee shops to do some work five to eight hours a week. And coffee shops, to some extent, complement your home and your office, but coffee shops just haven't been reinvented fast enough to create that micro-transactional, really good experience. So we said, you know, if GoPro was making a coffee shop, if Google was making a coffee shop, what would it look like? What would the Red Bull version of a coffee shop look like? This extreme environment built up from the ground up where it takes into account lots of different parameters. For instance, if you're left-handed, what does it mean for your experience? And what does um, hygiene mean and lighting mean and air quality and privacy and acoustics and psychological safety? What did those mean in a coffee shop setting? 
And why can't everyone benefit from that? And not just the elite who work at these giant corporations, which I'm in love with their buildings. So we're kind of democratizing that slightly at a very kind of easy paint price point. You can walk into us, spend $10 and experience that for an hour. So we, we've grown leaps and bounds. We started with me. I found my co-founder and COO, terrific guy named Jack, two months into, a month and a half into my campaign. We're now a, you know, t- a 10 advisors, 65 investors, building a large team, building multiple locations at the same time, and looking, looking at really mouth-watering outcomes for ourselves of having 50 or 100 of these in the next um, couple of years. Which, which means with that level of scale, walking away from what we do, but actually how we do it, um, lots of decisions are being made. Um, and some of those are short-term, but some of them have major impact long-term. Um, getting them right is important, but knowing how to walk away from the ones that are less good is also important. Wait, so how do you do that? Because you are, as an entrepreneur, you see opportunity, right? Isn't that the the mindset of an entrepreneur? How can we grow the business? How can we potentially scale? So question, how do you prioritize what to do first? Because I think that's a decision that's sometimes really difficult is how do I prioritize what is important, especially when there's so many great solutions? How do you prioritize that? Or what do you do to help yourself make a more informed decision? Well, we have a framework, um, and it's not. I mean, we we we've adopted it. We haven't come up with it. We have two frameworks actually that really help us. One, we have something called the OKR, Objective and Key Result. Major companies around the world, kind of immaterial of of which vertical they're in, whether they're established or or newer companies, use that. Which means, um, whether whatever we we're trying to do, there has to be an objective to do with it, and we have to be able to measure it at the end of it to have some sort of key result. And then we connect that to time and money, which means we then have monthly OKRs, which says this month, the team has to accomplish these goals associated with these goals are these key results. And it's a very overview idea. And we spend four hours in the end of the month inventing what next month could look like. And we do it with quarter and fiscally at the same time. So that is a real kind of true north for us. From there, we know how to allocate resources of time and money and and, 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 and time of, of, of people, and then we identify gaps. So the first and foremost is which direction you're running. I mean, jumping to the weeds to make decisions is, is much harder, but if you know which direction you're trying to run, um, it's much better to then build branches from there. So we start from the top and build down into the pyramid. The second framework we use is something called the RACI, which is this idea that says good decision-making has to have some functions in it. There has to be someone responsible in that decision-making process. It could be more than one person. There has to be someone accountable. There can only be one person accountable. The buck has to stop with that person. She or he is ultimately responsible for that decision. Then there is someone... I want to ask you quick, Mo. Sorry to interrupt you. Because I think sometimes people can be reluctant to either feel like, well... Who should I make that way? Or who should I give that responsibility to? How do you determine, because I know that you likely have a lot of things going, how do you empower that autonomy to say, the buck stops with you, you're the person? Because there's a level of confidence that you need that individual to have to be accountable. So how do you select that person or how do you go about determining that? Uh, the, The person who's ultimately responsible 
which is slightly different. The nuances of responsible accountable are slightly different. Um, is is a domain expert. Um, they may be a you know social media guru, and their responsibility is is to deliver certain results, manage the campaign, etc. But then the CMO who sits above them may be accountable for that because the CMO she's managing bigger dependencies. She's managing TV campaigns, different rollouts, custom acquisition strategy. Whereas the social media manager, who's the R on that campaign, is not entirely aware of all the other spinning plates. So they could be the same two people in the department, but they just have different information flow and functions. So I think domain expertise is, is really important in, in the R. And the person who's ultimately accountable is someone who's a little bit more senior, who has a bit more of a periphery vision into other departments that have an impact on it. But then within that race, which gets even more interesting, is someone who's supporting the decision, someone who's consulting on the decision, and someone who's being informed of the decision. For instance, if you have a CFO, she or he may be informed of the cost bearing of this decision, but it's a one-way piece of traffic where they just need to hear the information and you're not expecting any traffic back from them to make a good decision. So uh, if, if your audience hasn't come across it, it's helped us enormously to be able to scale really, really fast and not trip over ourselves and bump into each other. Because in, when you're trying to scale fast, function becomes really, really important. Um, and it's within function that decisions are made. Um, and believe it or not, the, I, I, I fell off my seat when I came across this statistic. We, a, an average human being takes 14 million decisions a year, conscious decisions. So whether I should, wow. have, a coffee, whether I should <laughs> have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee is a conscious decision. Yeah. So if you're making 14 million decisions and let's say you're awake, you know, you're at work for half of those decisions, you take about seven, eight million decisions at work every year. Even if each decision had a hundredth of a penny cost to it, you know, bad decision can cost you and your organization a lot of money. So investing in good decision making, and there's definitely an algorithm and science to it, um, is really important. How do you invest in good decision making? Education, training, creating an environment where people are psychologically safe, where you can make errors um, and, and volunteer that information. Um, if, you, if, you're, if you live in an environment where you're, you're afraid to, to own up or admit or even call it wrong. Um, you you have some rigidity there. It makes it makes it makes it difficult. Technology is incredible to be able to bring shine light on it and bring some transparency into it. Um, there is a there is there is some algorithms out there on set plays. At the same time, what you should do in certain situations. Um, for instance, when when you're recruiting or when you're making certain decisions that are repetitive, should you interview 10 candidates or should you stop at three, there's some statistics behind it that will help you um, help you determine that. And finally, it's confirmation biases and your own heuristics to be able to make sure that you can get out the way of a good decision. Um, and sometimes that's very hard to do. Oh my, absolutely. I am reading, and I said this, I think probably on a prior podcast, but I'm reading Adam Grant's book that he wrote and released in 2021, um, Think Again. And I think, you know, it was very thought provoking in the sense of how much confirmation bias do I actually have? Because again, I actually think because I'm aware of these terms that I'm also aware of my bias. 
And then I'm actually less aware of what I want to be, right? Like I wish that I could. But confirmation bias, I mean, we know, like, how do you overcome confirmation bias? Because I know I want to be right sometimes. It feels good, right? You get that little endorphin that says, I made the right thing. Or your ego is just wanting that validation. How do you overcome confirmation bias for yourself personally? Well, it's really tough because the idea of a bias is, is something of a blind spot inherently means it's, you can't see it. If it was, if you could see it, it wouldn't be blind to you. Um, therefore, having a good team is important. And by that, I mean a good organizational structure. You could have a good team, but just wrongly set up. Um, so organizational structures become, whether you're flat, a hierarchy, or functional, whatever it is, I think that needs to be identified for you and your team. And our team is very small, so it can just be a couple of people, but still you can have that structure in place. And an advisory board is incredible. Um, believe it or not, an advisory board initially, um, when you're very, very small, very, very young, can be imaginary. It can come from books. You can take a, 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 a read a biography of someone that you admire and what they've done in this life and get to know them and say, what would they tell me in that environment? That is, to some extent, a measure of accountability even there. But as you get more, you know, you get larger and, and, and maybe older or you build a business around an organization, having an advisory board, and we have, we have six advisors with whom we meet about 16 hours a month on all, and it's our time to say, can you help us put our head around the corner? What are we not seeing here? Um, stress test our decisions and are we making the right call? Um, are we too committed to this that our nose is too close to it that we don't see you know, the woods from the trees? And those things is about intention. Um, it's about wanting not to do it, and hopefully you won't do it. Yeah, you've got the advisor. I love that you bring in just multiple people to examine the problem. Did we pick the right solution? And you talked about a lot of key things within that. You know, actually having the accountability around the milestones, the check-in points. Are we getting it right? Do we need to change or iterate? How do we miss the mark? I think that's actually where a lot of people go wrong in that decision-making process is it's more of that set and forget. They see the next big idea. They have, you know, assigned different people, probably not just one person to be accountable to it, but they've assigned multiple people. And then once it gets to the execution, they say, well, we implemented, check that box. On to the next. And then there's no follow-up on it. I'm curious how, like, is that something that you do for yourself in advance? You'll set this curriculum or I guess journey, if you will, that says, you know, we're going to release and make this decision. When do you check in on it again? Or how do you build in those check-in points? Because I think that really is what people struggle with, or they just get so excited about the, the idea that they don't think about the necessity and importance of that. I agree. I agree. I come from a school of thought that kind of very disciplined that says ideas are cheap and it's about execution. Um, unless you're able to deliver on it, um, it can be meaningless, actually. So, and we're also very lucky at Vell. We, come, we, we are remote first and we come from an environment that had to be remote first, just pure necessity because we, we, we grew up and we, 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 we innovated and we became effective during COVID, which meant we had to be remote first. With that comes, and I'll come to your question, but with that comes some responsibility of, of, of creating a digital environment whereby you're still highly connected. Um, these amazing companies like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, these people live together for, for years on end, creating product 
creating these companies, creating culture, creating value, it's, it's much harder to do that remotely when you're not together initially. Therefore, you have to overcompensate using technology. And we have done that. Adoption of Slack, Miro, Monday, TeamFlow, the list goes on for us and each one has a different offering for us. So when it comes to a decision-making value chain or a decision-making trail, we have, again, the race comes involved, whoever they are within that decision-making chain, and we have touch points. And because we don't have an office, we, we, we have tried to create data rooms. Um, if you imagine a real physical room, a live data room, which says, if Mo wants to walk into this room at 2 a.m., the information should be live, should be current, so Mo can add value, extract what he needs, get on with what he has to do. And then the same for everyone else. So we can create this environment where I can work at 2 a.m. if I want to, and I can work remotely. But there is a certain responsible responsibility from the team in that. It takes some getting used to, um, but if you can if you can if you can get it right, it it can help you move much faster. I love on-demand data rooms that actually contain real-time information. Right. Think about how happy I mean. If I think and I was maybe a new employee and I was maybe removed to some of the meetings. How nice would it be to have a centralized place where I could observe the problem, understand the problem, understand even how I fit with the problem? I think that's such an interesting concept, and I've never heard of data rooms before. But I love that from where I sit and the problems that I hear from leaders when we teach through Crosscom's program, just what a great place to make sure that we're keeping communication open. Crosscom is a global organization dedicated to developing effective leaders. Companies all over the world have seen their managers transformed into leaders through our award-winning and accredited leadership development programs. Our signature BPM program provides interactive management training with a results-oriented curriculum and prime networking opportunities. If you're interested in learning more about our flagship program and developing your managers into leaders, please visit our website to find a leadership trainer near you. Or maybe you yourself have always wanted to train and develop others. Crosscom is a global franchise with ownership opportunities available throughout the world. If you have ever thought about being your own boss, owning your own business, and leveraging your leadership experience to impact businesses and leaders in your community, Crosscom may be the right fit for you. We're looking for professional executives who are looking for a change and want to make a difference in people's lives. Learn more about our franchise opportunity on the Own a Franchise page of our website at crosscom.com. I want to bring it back down to, you know, your kind of recommendations or how you start with making that confident decision. And I know that one of the first things that you said is thinking about what is the outcome that you want to get? And we also talked about the importance of either having strategic partners or getting a different point of view to make sure that we can overcome some of those barriers. But once we figure out what decision, how do we then make it? How do we then make the decision? Because I think that's where the, even though we might know at a high level that the change is needed, the decisions needed, I think then there's a few things that can really inhibit us from making the decision. No. I mean, we talked about fear earlier, but one might be, and this is what we had talked about earlier. What does it mean to be 70% okay with the decision and not know the other 30%? Or do you have any tips on how you say, I have limited data. How do I make this decision? No, I love that point. So, so intelligent of you to bring it up. I think it, you can make quick decisions or long kind of longer 
extracted decisions. Um, but in, you need access to information. I think it's about assimilating information really, really fast, understanding what it means, being coherent with it. Um, even if there are gaps there, knowing that there are gaps, that's good enough. Then, then being in an evaluation phase, and I, we talk about this, decision-making decision has a, a large amount of fatigue with it, um, which, which can reduce willpower and can create an amount of stress, whether it's for the individual or for the team. So it's much easier to, to kind of sit in a holding pattern of evaluation, which means a non-attachment to the outcome. I'm, I'm purely evaluating the information at hand and we haven't discharged a decision. We could go either A, B, or C. We're not quite sure yet. And actually protecting that space, even if it's for 15 minutes. Then once you've done that, the decision makers at that point may not be the people who've been assimilating the information. The decision makers at that point come in a short, sharp, effective way, actually make that decision. And it's okay to make a decision on 70%, 80% sometimes. Actually, more often than not, particularly in startup territory, it is okay to make that so as long as you know the switching costs, the consequences, and what it means to get out of it or change, change route. But sometimes knowing the error is, is also important. Once, you, once you've calculated the risk and the downside, you may be able to get much more comfortable with it. Talking about decision fatigue, I think that's real. It, it, it does, it, it's counterintuitive to think about it, but the more time you spend contemplating decisions, it does get harder um, to, to make it. Um, sugar levels drop, willpower drops, um, temptations to confirmation biases drop. I mean, some of these are marketeers' dream, you know, of, of convincing <laughs> To buy something, but they're also real within within a team. Um, what time of day you make the decision is important. Are you you know really simple stuff? Are you, are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you not? And sometimes these can't be avoided, uh, of course. Um, but the last thing you want to do you, is to be in an eight-hour decision-making session. I mean, that's that doesn't exist. It's it's not it's not good for business. Well, and I like that you bring up the important piece because again, we often think about it and you probably have, will have a much more high level way to describe it, but we often, I think, just make decisions and are just like indifferent to them. We don't think about what's going, we don't think about what's going to happen. We don't think about, is it the right decision? Is it not? I lost my train of thought, Mo. I'm going to quick pause this. So Mo, many of us have been conditioned to look at strategic, like strategy, decision-making through this lens of what's best for the company. What do we need to consider? What's the data that we have? And I do think, and it's what you just called out, a misstep that we don't even realize that will play into whether or not we make a great decision is our is how we're feeling physically. It is, are we hungry? It is, are we tired? I mean, we talk about that at a high level. I think many people know your health determines it, but right here, you just explained why your health is so important as it relates to overcoming decision or initiative fatigue. Like being able to make sure that you are set up for success, you have enough sleep to be able to look at a problem objectively or with a fresh set of eyes. You have eaten, so you don't have any other annoying maybe... Um, pings that could detract from your ability to focus. I just think that's a really important point that you just made that not a lot of people even consider. It might just be, oh, I don't have the information or, oh, they're doing too much. And you don't realize 
but are you showing up as your best self right now? Um, and that's kind of, I just like that you bring that point up because I don't think people often think about that when it innately as it relates to decision-making. No, I agree. And, you know, I think decision-making is much more of a sprint than it is a long distance run. You know, if you, if you know what I mean, I think if you want to, if you, if you want to evaluate something, you can go on for days and weeks and even months evaluating various scenarios and planning for it and knowing what risks are associated with the outcomes, what gaps are there, managing and allocating resources to it. But ultimately, a decision has to be short, sharp, and effective uh, and basing that. And there, there are case studies out there. Um, that I think there is, there is one with, with a set of Israeli judges that measured the consistency of the decision-making on verdicts before and after lunch. And they found wide dis- inconsistencies. In they were making different decisions because of their sugar levels. So it is real of your physiological self, psychological self will have a bearing on what kind of a decision you make. That is, wow. I actually need to go and find and do more research on that because that is incredibly interesting to know that their accuracy of decision-making could have been impacted by the time of day that they made that decision and by the physiological I guess, feeling that they had or their physical feeling that they had in the moment. I mean, this is why this is important to everyone. Um, I know that evaluation is a piece. How do you evaluate whether or not you've hit the mark? Are there any tips that you think of what you look for to determine, are we getting it right? Well, evaluation pre, before the fact and after the fact are slightly different. After the fact, you have data and you can measure it and you ought to measure it. Um, uh, otherwise, it's not really a, a key result. Um, and it shouldn't be soft, uh, intangible ideas of, of, of measuring. It, it should be clear and effective because if you've set good goals on the outcome, then you should be able to, you should be able to measure them. Um, but you also have to have enough time have gone by. And I'm, I know I'm being abstract because the situations are so different, sure. but the principles are the same. You have to have enough time have to have gone by for you to know has a decision yielded results or not, right? Let's say you've gone into a lease, you've opened your doors and you're three months in and you're not hitting your marks on revenue, yield, et cetera, then you, know, you, you can't make U-turns. It's far too early. So giving enough time for, to go by in that scenario is, is important. But coming back to this kind of idea of decision-making within an organization, um, whether you, how you measure it or how you evaluate it, I think this degree of culture that you need to bring in. What do you stand for? What kind of environment do you want to create as micro teams, large organizations about decision making? How important is it to be right? Um, how is it important to be not always right, but be good at making decisions, fast at making decisions? How fast do you want to travel? Um, some, some industries can't afford mistakes. Therefore, they move very, very slowly. Um, right. And, and, and rightly so. But in, in some businesses, it's much more important to move fast and be ahead of the competition. Hence, this culture and philosophy of minimum viable product, minimum viable um, X. So there are minimal viable decisions that you can make that will get you from one gate to the next gate. And then let's see where we get up. And each gate, and these are metaphoric ideas, each gate can have its association of how much money do I need to put in? How much manpower do I need to now put in? Because it's been validated. Now we need to get to the next to the next process. I love that you're talking about it, even from that financial piece. What do we need to do? That objectives. I think sometimes 
that decision, there might be a high level decision that's made at the executive level. And then it trickles down through the organization through, you know, smaller decision-making, but then people are still, you know, a little confused. What do I do? How do I do it? And I think that you just answered, you know, just the importance of why you need to plan at every single level. You need to see the problem, see how it relates to it. Do you have capacity? And I think sometimes people might hear the objective coming from up top and then they look at their teams and then they may not have the capacity, but then they still might make the decision to go forward. And is it really going to be successful? Or how much time, as you talked about, thinking about time, we need time. How much time will you allow, given the resource constraints that you have, to determine to make it right? I think a lot of people at the emerging leadership level, the mid-level leader, may not be exposed to using this type of data to make the decision. It still might be, well, this is what you know the, the strategic initiative is, so let's just go forth and implement, instead of really then thinking about it as another opportunity to strategize and make a great decision for the execution. I'm not sure if you see that where people feel like, and maybe it comes back to our earlier conversation about the importance of having responsibility and accountability, because if it's not there, then that might be one of the primary reasons we're not even doing the diligence to think about how can we impact the success of this, this decision by planning. I agree. Uh, there definitely should be decision culture domain fit for a good decision to come. But I like some of the points you mentioned and raise this idea or this argument of how much of the decision can be delegated. Um, I mean, look look what automation, robotics, algorithms um, are doing in, in lots of industries. How much how much decision how much fewer decisions does a pilot have to make or a driver has to make today than twenty five years ago? I think slowly you're going to see that level of disruption in the boardroom, whereby you can make fast, reliable, good decision, even data visualization and business intelligence offers that previously were reserved for conglomerates. Today, a startup can get it. This aggregation of data, whereby you can say, I, I have the data and it, it's only pointing this way. And that level of transparency or visualization of being able to slice and dice is only going to get better. It might even get so good that it can suggest or recommend a decision for you, which means we can really focus on creativity, larger decisions, which are really, really complex. Um, and, 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 and the way we work might change. So let's, let's close with thinking about the worst possible outcome that people think about when it, or as it relates to decision-making. Mo, what happens if I make a mistake? What happens if I get it wrong? What advice do you have for people as it relates to learning from your mistakes? Because I think we go into it, we're afraid, we don't want to make the mistake. And then when it happens, it can feed into that narrative. Look, you did it. You did it wrong. And then it can make us more risk averse in the future. So how do you help people learn from their mistakes? Well, micro, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no different, actually. I'm no different. It's, it's a human condition. Uh, micro success is important. Therefore, going through these gates and validating it at smaller smaller chunks becomes easier because then you can follow the maths of how you got there. Um, and it doesn't shatter your confidence because you could have done six things right, but the final thing is just not. And, and you, you're mitigating risk somehow because you might have never ended up at the end if you've broken down the process a little bit more. Um, but micro successes. I love that reframing it. This is a micro success. We now have new data that says whether we're getting it right or whether we're getting it wrong. And that can build that confidence. It's a reframe. I love that. 
and and getting getting comfortable with with errors is just one of the things that we everyone needs to get better as an organization. Um, whether whether you call it a failure, we call it errors rather than a failure because everyone makes errors. Even if you made an error, you might not fail. So culturally, we try to say it's okay to do that. But ultimately, there are consequences when you get it wrong, and sometimes you just have to be okay with those consequences. But if you move together as a team and you're not solo in an ivory tower and everyone is caught off guard by surprise and and you discuss it, you get it wrong, and often you're getting it wrong together. <laughs> um, so you don't want to be alone in it. Um, that level of camaraderie is really unifying. And and often, often teams come out, they may have got it wrong systematically for months at a time, but then because they persevered, they're a very, very good team. They, they're putting everything in place correctly, they'll eventually eventually succeed and get it right and solve the problem. I love that. So there's a level of vulnerability and acceptance. I like your reframe calling it an error and this is going to happen. But then also another piece that I heard you say is then we bring it to the team and we have dialogue and then we it allows us to examine, hey, what part did we maybe I guess, misthink or not misthink, that's not a phrase, but did we not think about correctly? And what are we going to do to course correct? How can we continue to grow together? I love that. Maybe it's because I'm obsessed with building connection and belonging. But when I know that people feel a sense of belonging and support, we work together better, even if we are making errors or mistakes or failures. And, you know, again, you brought up another point of the important piece of the planning process with every single decision. What are the possible or potential consequences that can happen? And are you okay with them or can you weather that if that occurs? Mo, I have loved our conversation today. I think you hit on so many great points. You are so highly intelligent and just brought a lot of different perspective on how we can approach this and how we can be more resilient and more confident decision makers. Mo, how do people get in touch with you? How can they connect with and get to know more about Val? Well, I, I really enjoy connecting with people on LinkedIn. So I'm sure it'll be in your show notes. Please find me there. Um, Val, you can find us at myvel.com um, and we're on all social media channels and our handle is work at Val. I'm sure you put it in the show notes. I enjoy meeting new people, uh, discussing new problems. Um, so feel free to find me. Yeah. If you've got a decision that you're making, maybe they can reach out and connect with you and see what would Mo do? Mo, thank you so much for giving us or giving us your time, which we know is an important resource, but your expertise, your passion to helping people. I greatly appreciate it. I look forward to the day that Val comes to Denver too. So one day it's going to come to Denver. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jen. Well done. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast with Mo Hamzian. If you enjoyed today's podcast, or better yet, if you know someone that could benefit from this conversation about how to make confident decisions, share this episode with them. If you want to connect with Mo, feel free to head on over to mybell.com. You can find the link in our show notes. Also, connect with him on LinkedIn and feel free to reach out to ask him his insight on how to approach maybe your problems. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast streaming service.